For those who are uh, visiting with us this morning, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John, and uh, we are just allowing God's Word to shape us, to mold us, and whatever is next is next, and we take that as part of God's plan and purpose uh, for teaching us and shaping us to be like His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves today uh, once again in the upper room, and Jesus is speaking with His disciples, and that is the setting for our text. Well, on Friday morning this past week, at 9.26 a.m., a meteor hit the Siberian town of Chelyabinsk, Russia. Um, and as I studied it a little bit, I found out it is the next major city near the city of Ufa, where we have been doing ministry in Russia. It's about 200 miles or so to the east of Ufa. And... Um, Here are a couple of the reports. Here's the Huffington Post. Here's what they said. Almost 1,000 people were injured after a meteor streaked through the skies above Russian Ural Mountains. Fragments of the meteor fell to the ground, breaking windows and setting off car alarms in the Chelyabinsk region, while a series of loud bangs around uh, 3.20 or 9.20 a.m. local time caused panic amid initial fears there had been a plane crash. The British Mail reported this. Some feared a plane was about to fall out of the sky, while others thought that the world was coming to an end. In fact, it was a meteor streaking across the sky before exploding in a fireball brighter than the sun. A thunderous sonic boom shattered windows, rocked buildings, and interrupted mobile phone networks. Almost 1,000 people were injured by flying fragments of glass and rubble at least 112 seriously. Now, as I did some further study on that, they determined that the the piece of rock was estimated to be 50 feet wide, which really isn't that big when you think about it, but when it's flying through the atmosphere and it's coming into our world, um, it turns into something very, very powerful. And about, they say, between 18 or 32 miles above ground, it began to disintegrate and turn to this big kind of glow ball. And video footage shows the power of the sonic boom. People who are in office buildings being blown over. Um, metal kind of corrugated doors, the kind of thing you'd have on a, on a garage, just, just completely torn off the hinges. Car alarms going off miles away. General panic among many of the people. Now, honestly, I don't recall anything like this in my lifetime. And for it all to be caught on film, if you go online today and you just type in, you know, meteor shower in Russia, whatever, um, it'll come up with this. And you see the video uh, of it, and it's absolutely incredible. And the whole world knew about it just minutes after. An incredible event, a catastrophic to some degree event that is heard about around the world. Well, over 2,000 years ago, a series of events prophesied and foretold by Jesus himself would take place. And these events, though not recorded on film, are recorded faithfully for us in the pages of God's Word. The Son of God, the Word made flesh, would be handed over to the Jewish authorities. He'd be put on trial He would suffer under the whip of the cat of nine tails. He would be crucified unjustly, but in so doing, 
He would satisfy the demands of the Father and would be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And during those events, John tells us in his Gospel that one of the disciples would betray Jesus. He also tells us that one of those disciples would deny Jesus. And in the passage that we just read, we are told that all the disciples would scatter. They would run away and leave Jesus alone to fend for himself. But not only that, Jesus had told his disciples that he would have to suffer, that the Holy Spirit was coming, and that they, as a band of brothers, should love one another. And so now Jesus, in this upper room discourse, continues to encourage those disciples who are struggling with their sorrow about the things that they are going to face. And he says in the beginning of chapter 16 that part of the reason as to why he's telling them these things is because he doesn't want them to fall away. And so he, he, he teaches them about joy, a joy that is present even in times of sorrow, a joy that is theirs to embrace, a joy that is rooted in him. And their hearts are filled with sorrow and they need to understand this joy and that it is theirs through Him. And so as we come to our text today, I want to I lay out for us really kind of the, the, the structure of what we're going to be looking at. In this context of sorrow, Jesus comforts and encourages His disciples with three promises. And they're promises of joy that will be anchors for the coming days. And hear this. The promises of God are not just things that float out there that we just kind of bounce around through time and say, oh, I need a promise. Let me get my, my net and, and, and net myself a promise. These promises are foundational for our walk. They are anchors that hold us in place as we go through what God has given us to go through for His glory. So as we continue on thinking about this, that is true for the disciples, but it is also true for us. Jesus, in giving the disciples these encouragements, also gives us three anchors, anchors that will feed our joy during these times of sorrow when he is gone away. And these anchors will result in us as his children having and experiencing a secure, a complete, and a triumphant joy. Now, what are these anchors that can bring such joyful comfort to sorrowing souls? There are three promises that are true for the disciples and they are true for all who are followers of Christ. But let's pause right now and let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's just ask that he would shape us and mold us and challenge us and encourage us through his word today. Lord, I ask that uh, with all the things that we have walked into this place with, Lord, burdens, struggles, hurts, trials, sorrows, Lord, opportunities missed. Lord, there's all sorts of things that we may be wrestling with today that we bring. And Lord, I ask that today that we would see you afresh. We'd see, Lord, what you have done for us afresh. That we would have perspective that is rooted in what you reveal in your word for our benefit and Lord, allow me as your messenger simply to reflect your truth, Lord, to, to speak clearly 
and powerfully, Lord, what it is that you desire for your people to hear and to see. And Lord, that we would be strengthened and encouraged. And Lord, that we would grasp what it means to have joy in you. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Now here's the first promise. The first promise is this. It's the promise of Christ's provision. And here, John is going to say, listen, I want you to notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying, trust in my provision. John is writing it. He's recording it. He's remembering it. That Jesus is saying, it's my provision that is the source of your joy. Or to put it differently, as it says there in the bottom, or on your handout, a joy that is secure comes through trusting in the promise of Christ's provision. So the question now is, what is this provision that Jesus Christ is promising? And I'll give you the answer. It is the promise of His presence. Jesus promises to provide His disciples with His presence. And hear this, as He says that to the disciples in their circumstance, we can throw that same principle, that same truth 2,000 years later, and we can embrace it for ourselves. And we'll understand that in just a little bit. Now look at the text at hand. Verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. You might be saying, well, wait a second. This is, this is like a riddle. No, Jesus is speaking, but he's speaking a little bit kind of guarded but he's speaking the truth. Verse 17, some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he is saying to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. You ever been there? All right, I, I see this in your word. <laughs> Lord, I have no clue. I don't understand it. Can't connect the dots. That's what the disciples were struggling with here. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? So what does Jesus mean by a little while? This is a very important interpretive question. Right? Some believe that the a little while is referring to ultimately his second coming. So in a little while, he's going to come to the earth and he's going to reign on this earth. It's an eschatological or kind of future prophetic idea. But that really doesn't fit the context. That doesn't set into all the things that Jesus has been talking about with his disciples. Many believe that what Jesus is talking about here, this little while, are the immediate events of his death, burial, and resurrection. Now think of it this way. Jesus, that night, is going to be taken away. He's going to be arrested, ultimately put on trial, and he is going to be crucified. And we know that after his crucifixion, he is going to be buried, and three days later, he's going to rise again. And what does he do once he's resurrected? He comes and he appears to many, including his disciples, right? So they will see him again after his resurrection. And I think that is part of what's going on here. I would embrace this as part of the events that are referred to as a little while. This is important. But Jesus, remember, is going to be there a little while and then he's gone again. 
So the promise, is, is it short term or is it longer than that? Well, I would say that it embraces the immediate events, but it also points to some longer lasting reality. And this would be the third interpretation. Others believe that this is talking about the coming of what we call the church age. And what begins the church age is the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I would say that in the context of what's going on here, what Jesus has already been saying to the, his disciples, what, is he be, what has he been saying to the disciples about the Holy Spirit? He's been saying, I'm going, but don't worry, the Holy Spirit is coming, and he is just like me. He will carry on with the things that I have taught you, and he will actually expand on those things, right? So, it is the immediate events, but it's also the immediate events that will result in the actual ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's going away, as I mentioned, has been the basis of discussion in the upper room. It has been the idea um, of the to totality of the events of the hour, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his interaction with the disciples on the earth, before his ascension, going up into glory. That's all part of this hour, all part of the events at hand. So this looming trouble that is bringing sorrow now is about to begin. But his return will be quite soon. And he will be going away quite quickly after that. And so the, the disciples are really in for a bumpy ride, are they not? They are, if you know the stories of what happened. And Jesus is speaking about that at the end of the chapter, talking about, you know, you guys are going to all, you're all going to scatter. Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. Very familiar passage, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, known as the Great Commission. And I want to just make sure we understand this as we read this. The setting of Jesus' words in the Great Commission take place after Jesus has gone to the cross, been buried, and resurrected. It's between the time of his resurrection and his ascension up into heaven, all right? This is the setting. So here's what Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son uh, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Bye, I'm leaving. I am with you always to the end of the age. Goodbye, I'm leaving. Well, how in the world can he say, I'm with you to the end of the age, if he is leaving and going to the Father? Is that a legitimate question? The answer is yes. Okay? The answer is quite simple. And Jesus has already told the disciples about the answer and how this is all going to take place. He will be sending another helper, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is with uh, the disciples and through the person of the uh, person, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So here's Jesus. Jesus is leaving, but as he leaves, he ascends into heaven. He is also then with the disciples in the person of the Holy Spirit. So his leaving is a physical leaving, but his might want to say spiritual presence is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now let's just paint a a broader picture here by looking at a few verses of Scripture. All right, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Here's where we start to connect some dots. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Anyone who does not have what? Or who? The Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So the promise here is of His presence, and it's the Holy Spirit now who we're finding out is the Spirit of Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, Paul says, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you have this, this connection here between Jesus and the Spirit. Okay, Philippians 1.19 For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And finally, 1 Peter 1.11 Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The point that I'm trying to show you here is that when Jesus departs and when he says, I am with you always, he is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So not only does the Spirit, or is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit also reveals Christ. And that's where we go back now to John chapter 16 and verses 13 through 15, and it says this. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, this is Jesus speaking, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And the Father has, and all the Father has is mine, therefore I said, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you, you see this interplay with the, the Godhead working together here. Now this is all foundational for, to help us understand the importance of what Jesus is telling us here about his provision. The provision is the promise that he is present in the person of the Holy Spirit, and even though difficult and sorrowful times were ahead, they would soon be forgotten and turned into joy. Now look, if you would, please, at verse 20. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, you will weep, you will lament. This is not figurative. Is there going to be real weeping? Is there going to be real lamenting? Yes. If you know what that word is, look it up, okay? To lament, right? We use it. Do we know what it means, right? To lament. But the world will what? <laughs> we've got it taken care of. He's on the cross. The king of kings is dead. Uh-huh. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The events of the next few days for the disciples are going to be trouble. They are going to be confusing. They are going to struggle in their being. Just have to remind you of Peter, his denials. All of that taking place. All the disciples being scattered, struggling. And so Jesus now illustrates his point with the whole picture of a woman bearing a child. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers 
the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, ladies, you understand what that passage is talking about. I remember many years ago when my daughter Vanessa was born. We were living in Buffalo, New York at that point in time. She's our first child. Um, as the young, eager father, I had mapped out the route to get to the hospital, so we had it all figured out. It just so happened that we got there that the entrance that we were supposed to go through was closed, and we didn't know how to get to the other entrance, and so we were trying to find our way into the emergency. We finally get into the emergency. <sighs> After being flustered a little bit and a little bit panicked, we finally get into our room and get settled there, and while the nurses are attending to Ellie, are hooking her up with all sorts of wires and things, I nestled into my recliner, um, found the remote control, and began watching a football game. And then I was gently and kindly interrupted um, and asked to come and hold a hand. And I must tell you, my wrist was really hurting because of all the squeezing that was going on and the kind of strange position that I was in. And I know that I needed to help her focus and all that kind of stuff. And she was squeezing when the contractions were coming. Um, and honestly, I, I thought it would just absolutely never end. But after, <laughs> after a few hours, when Vanessa was born, all of my suffering was turned to joy. <laughs> the hurt wrists, the pain in my back, the, the hunger in my tummy um, were all forgotten because in my lap was my daughter. Now, of course, you know I'm being a little facetious, and for a good purpose. My suffering, although in one sense it was, it was pain, it was struggle, my suffering did not compare to the suffering that Elia was going through. See, I said it, okay? Just so you know, all right? And Jesus here addresses their upcoming struggle from their perspective, but, but understand this. He was going to be the one hanging on a cross. He would be the one bearing the weight of sin for mankind. He would be the one experiencing being forsaken by his Father. But although he was going to experience ultimate suffering, what does he do in this tender moment? He condescends to the sorrow and the suffering of his disciples. And he embraces it as a reality. And he stoops to their level and helps his disciples to face their trial of sorrow and distress. And so verse 22, we're told, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will what? Rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. So in a little while you will not see me, in a little while you will see me again. And when you do see me, when all of the events that take place, the death, the burial, the, the crucifixion, the, the, um, the, got that in the wrong order there, right? Death, burial, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, your, your hearts ultimately, they will rejoice. And no one, absolutely no one can take that joy from you. It is a joy that is secure. Because there's something that's going to happen to the disciples. When Jesus finally ascends and the Holy Spirit comes, do you remember what happens? It's called light bulb 
They begin to remember. They begin to connect the dots. They begin to see the significance of what Jesus was doing on that cross. So these very events of the cross, which appear to them to be the greatest tragedy, now, because of opened eyes, become the basis for greatest joy. It wasn't that their sorrow was kind of overtaken by joy. It was that what they thought was tragedy was now ultimately joy. What they thought was tragedy, that their master was hanging on a cross, he was going to die. Now they see the significance, the fact he had to be on that cross in order to pay for the sin of mankind. And so now they look back at the cross. Okay, in the moment, it was tragic. In the moment, we didn't quite understand it. But now we understand the significance of what he has done. And no one can take that joy away from us. As the apostles talk about the cross in the epistles, that would be the letters that are written to the churches across the Mediterranean, the cross is not spoken of as a cause for sorrow, but a cause for joy. In the cross, in the cross, in the cross, is all looking back at what Jesus has accomplished for us. It is celebrated. It is rejoiced over. It was grueling for Christ to hang on the cross. It was disturbing for those who were followers of Christ. It was humiliating so much so that the Father had to turn his face away, but the cross, although a genuine tragedy, is much more an eternal victory that can never be undone. It is secure. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews then expounds on this, and this is how we began our services today. He tells us to look to Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy that Jesus was looking to? It was the joy of being the sacrifice once for all. It was the joy of bringing reconciliation with mankind. It was what was driving him to go to that cross and to experience the suffering and the shame. And the cross was for him then place of suffering but it was also a place of joy and so friends it is our joy to allow the truth of the gospel and the indwelling presence of the holy spirit that will be christ in us the hope of glory to grant us security and confidence as we live our lives as his disciples the holy spirit is our seal our guarantee, our engagement ring, so to speak, promising us our inheritance in heaven and that it is assured. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1, if you would, please. Ephesians 1. just want to root this in Scripture. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 11. In Him, talking about Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So friends, let's, let's put it this way. Our joy is secure because we know that it comes through trusting in the promise of Christ's provision. And that provision is the fact that Jesus has not left us. He is with us in the person of his Holy Spirit. Now friends, we, we, we want to we flesh that out a little bit. We want to think about what that means. That Jesus, although we can't touch him, we can't feel him, we can't see him, is present with us in the ministry, and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And that relationship, and that partnership, and that presence is guaranteed for those who are His children. And friends, that is what feeds our joy. It is who Jesus is and the fact that He is with us in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, I want you to notice in this passage another dynamic, another anchor to joy, and that is our ability to rest in answered prayer. And I've put it this way, a joy that is complete comes through resting in the promise of answered prayer. Now, it's a long section here, verse 23 through 28, but I want to kind of give you the gist of what's going on here. Here is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Have been with me for three years. Is that a long time to be with someone? I mean, if you're spending, you know, every day with them for the most part, all right, sitting around a campfire, you know, going from town to town, yeah, absolutely. Every time there has been an issue, every time there has been a problem, a struggle, a demon, a difficulty, something like that, you have come to me for help. That's what he's saying. I've been here. We've talked. I've given you answers, I've explained things, but when I'm gone, in that day, you will no longer have me to speak to. So look, if you would, please, at verse 23. In that day, you will ask me, ask nothing of me, because he's not going to be there physically. This will be a significant change in our relationship, he's saying to his disciples. A change that is for your benefit, a change that can only come about if I go away you will be able to speak directly to the Father. And understand this, the Father loves you and loves to hear from you and wants you to speak directly to Him. He wants you to come boldly to the throne of grace. And so as Christ's disciples, He is calling us to pray to the Father. And when we do, we find that our joy is full or our joy is complete. Now, he reveals for us some basic truths about prayer in these instructions. The first thing is this, that prayer is a privilege. Jesus' instructions here on prayer are a result of going through the cross. So we should not take it lightly that Jesus says to his disciples and ultimately is saying to us years later, listen, you now, because of the cross, can come boldly to the throne of grace. And I want you to note this, though. It's not that the disciples had never prayed to the Father before. Because Jesus taught them a prayer, the disciples' prayer. We know it's the Lord's prayer, right? And it starts out by saying, our Father who is in heaven. Aha. But what's different here 
is not the fact that the Father is the one that they're going to. It's the fact that they're going to the Father in Jesus' name. That's the difference. They're addressing the Father. They're coming to the Father, appealing and based on the name of Jesus. So prayer is, first of all, a privilege. Secondly, it has conditions, and that is what we're talking about here in Christ's name. God is not some genie. You just go up to and rub the lamp and say, I want this, give me this, boom, you get it. So when Jesus is saying, listen, if you ask the Father in my name, he will grant it to you, there's a qualifier there, right, in my name. Well, what is that? It means a few things. Number one, that we come as one who is identified with Christ by faith. In other words, that we are God's children. So an unbeliever, unless they're praying a prayer of repentance and confession and embracing Christ as the Lord and Savior, they don't, they don't have a formula they can just rattle off and get. This is only something that is unique to those who are identified by faith with Christ. Secondly, in his name means that we are to pray on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross. So these are prayers then that are rooted in the benefit or the effect of the cross. Not just something that we want. They're connected to what Jesus Christ has accomplished. The third thing is this, that we are to pray in line with the character and the will of Christ. So you want to do something that is sinful, you want to go on a certain venture that would not honor the Lord, you want to do something that you haven't been a good steward or you just want to satisfy your own selfish desires, guess what? That is not praying in Christ's name. So he's saying, listen, there's some parameters, there's some conditions here that are necessary for us as we pray. Now can we really know what praying in Christ's name is? And the answer is yes can know, first of all, by means of his word. That's why if you are struggling with what to do, you're struggling with how to do it, you open up God's word, and it's not just at that moment, you know, you open, pop open the Bible, where did it land, or look, we look for a verse. It's the steady, daily interacting with the word of God that you begin to, to develop this reservoir of, of understanding. But in the moment of your struggle, God does direct you to certain passages. And maybe you know passages to go to because you've studied it, but it's your word that is revealed to you, or his word that is revealed to you, but, but it's revealed by means of the Holy Spirit who is at work in you. He illuminates it. He interprets that word for you so that you know what to do and how to do it. But only if it's in his name. So you've got to ask yourself, what I'm asking, is this in accordance with what Christ would desire for me? Does it come out of the cross? Is it something that would be important to him? Does it really matter if you're standing at McDonald's whether you get you know, number one or a number five? Oh, Lord, I need understanding. I need wisdom here. One or five, Big Mac or whatever it is. I don't know, right? I, I don't think that flows out of what Jesus is talking about here. You use other principles to determine that. Number one, why are you at McDonald's, right? (laughs) I mean, just think through that. Next thing is prayer is ultimately a conversation. Notice what's going on here. He's saying to his disciples that prayer to the Father is just like talking to me in person. This is what he's saying. He's teaching us then that prayer is essentially a conversation where we talk to God. It's not some kind of mystical trance. 
And where are you going? I'm going to Yosemite. Why are you going to Yosemite? I'm going to go talk with God. Well, why are you going to Yosemite to talk with God? Because I can get higher on the mountain and I can be at one with Him and I can be there and I can feel Him and I can... You see how we, we, we can allow prayer to become this mystical experience rather than just the practical daily activity of interacting with God. Now, let's just go back a little bit in John's Gospel. And I want you to see the kind of questions that are asked of Jesus. Look at chapter 13, verse 36. Here's Peter. Lord, where are you going? Verse 37 of chapter 13. Peter again. Why can't I follow you? Chapter 14, verse 5. Here's Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Then there's Philip. Chapter 14, verse 8. Lord, show us the Father. Then there's Judas, not Iscariot. Chapter 14, verse 22. Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Then chapter 16 and verse 17. This is some of the disciples. What does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after that, a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? These are pretty mundane questions, aren't they? It's not like, God, I'm coming to you to find the deepest, farthest, most important answers to life. No. This is like, what are you doing, God? For some reason, we are quick to hold up as examples for prayer, prayers that are long and prayers that are offered at significant times. And they're great prayers. Don't get me wrong. But if Jesus is saying what he's saying here, what he's saying is, listen, prayer is just like talking to me. Just like we talked, now you can talk to the Father. So it's going to come out um, in, 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 in ways like this. He's, he's, he's trying to help us understand the kind of questions that we're likely to ask as we're going through times of sorrow and difficulty and trial. Father, why is this happening? You ever asked him that? Father, I, I, I don't understand you ever been there? God, how can I get through this trial? Jesus, from, from where will I find the strength to be that kind of father or that kind of mother or that kind of husband or that kind of wife or that kind of parent? Lord, how long will this last? I need wisdom. These are the mundane, regular kind of questions that we have, and this is what prayer is. So don't think you're not praying if you're not kind of coming and getting on your knees and laying out prostrate before God and all these things are happening and the planets are aligning and all this kind of stuff. Prayer is very, very simple. It's talking to God, but it's talking in according to His will, in His name. And so as you're going through something, you're saying, Lord, I, I need help. I need help. Just give me wisdom. Lord, I, I, this is before me and I'm not exactly sure what to do. That is exactly what He wants you to be doing. That is prayer. It's conversation. The next one, prayer bears fruit. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things, this is verse 25, to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The first fruit of prayer is understanding. I'll no longer leave you with figures of speech. The Holy Spirit will come. He will guide you in, in the truth. He will 
take what is confusing, he will make it plain for you. That's just part of the process of growing with him and maturing in Christ-likeness. The second fruit, then, is the fruit of joy being complete. Okay, Complete joy. Now, friends, when we are asked, uh, when we come to God and we ask, we are asking in such a way because if it's in accordance to his will, he promises that he will answer And of course, being according to his will, it means that whatever he desires, whatever he wants, whatever he is seeking to do in my life, I am going to be humble before him about. And therefore, when I bring prayers properly to him, I'm resting in what I know of him. That means that I am resting in his sovereignty, his character. So when we ask and receive from the Father, the result is that we have confidence in him. Let me give you an example, right? We go through a trial, and we come to him asking why, or how long, or what should I do. He directs us back to the gospel. The first thing he does then is he reminds us of our sinfulness paid for by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, right? Just go back to the basics. What were you like before I drew you to myself and welcomed you in my family? You remember that? Yes, I remember that. Okay, number two, he reminds us in the, that in the following... That, that in following him, he will have to deny, we will have to deny him, take up our cross daily and follow him. In other words, that whatever you're going through right now, let's just go back before that. You're one of my children. I brought you in. And in order to follow me, you have to deny yourself, which means what? Put your desires away. It's my desires that matter, right? Take up your cross daily and follow him. You're going to suffer. You're going to struggle. Life is not going to be always, you know, you know, bouncing around through the the daffodils, okay? He reminds us that he is sovereignly working out his plan, which is not removed from trial or suffering. So we're, we're, we're just now understanding that, okay, this is part of the process. This is who God is. This is what he's promised us. This is what he's told us. And he reminds us that he is at work in us through the trial. And so what's going on here is as we go to God in prayer and we're praying in his name, he then is fashioning us with his truth so that we can turn around and look again at that trial. The trial hasn't changed. What has changed is my perspective in the trial. And so my joy now can be full because I realize, you know what? This trial is brought by God, and he is doing something in me, and he's doing something for his plan. Therefore, I'm going to face this trial with joy, knowing that he is fully in control and that my interference in that is only going to go against what he desires to accomplish in me and through me. That's why when we turn to the book of James and chapter 1 and verses 2 and following, we see this. James says, count it all what? Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I think James must have read John's gospel, although he was written before. But anyway, it's all another story. You see the connection there? Your joy is complete because you now have a perspective that is a heavenly, fatherly, divine perspective on what is going on, and your joy can be full. So we can put it this way. Our joy is complete when it comes through resting in the promise of answered prayer. But not only is answered prayer an anchor for our souls and for our joy, we finally are going to look here now at what I'm calling 
the promise of our eternal position. Now, honestly, the next few verses are kind of summary verses, talking about some things that have already been discussed. But let's look at them from the perspective of this statement. A joy that is triumphant comes through believing in the promise of our eternal position. I want you to notice, first of all, the disciples, as a result of what Jesus has said, are very, very confident that they know and believe Jesus. Look at verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Just pause there. I mean, these guys are really, really dense. I mean, is that the whole point here, is that we can't understand any figurative language? Now, there was a spiritual blindness that Jesus had there, okay, that he put on them. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. We've come to the place where we, we have full understanding. We don't need to have anyone come and ask you more questions about who you are and why you're here and where'd you come from. This is why we believe that you came from God. We figured it out. It's incredible. Jesus is speaking plainly, and all of a sudden, Boom, full knowledge and belief has come. So the disciples are confident that they know and believe. Jesus, however, is confident that they really don't. He is not impressed with their faith, which, by the way, is a little theme in John's Gospel, isn't it? People are exercising faith, and Jesus is saying, hmm, no, not quite, no, not quite. And notice Jesus' response here. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Which is a little bit of a sarcastic statement. He now challenges their profession of faith. That they would be, this this faith that would be short-lived and would evaporate quickly. And so he illustrates, this is what's going to happen. This is prophetic now. This This is how he's playing it out. You say you believe, but this is what's going to happen. Behold, the hour is coming. So that's all those events that were being talked about. His, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will, have, uh, will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So all of these events are going to be taking place. The denial of, of, of Peter, the scattering of the disciples, the abandonment of Jesus, the, one who professed to know, the ones who profess to know and believe him will soon behave like they don't know and are not believers. Now, friends, isn't that like us? We say we believe, but our choices and our behavior betrays that confidence or that reality. It's kind of like a person driving around in a car that has a Christian bumper sticker on it, and you're driving behind them, and you're thinking, do they know what a speed limit is? Do they know what a right turn signal is? Do they know what it means to cut people off in traffic? And, and maybe that person is doing things that Christians should never be doing. But, boom, there's a sticker there, right? So there's, there's a profession, and there's this belief. And I think what's going on here is there is a progress in, in the disciples' belief. But I, I want us to see here ultimately what Jesus is getting at. We see ourselves in this. We see uh, that oftentimes we find ourselves saying, yeah, we believe this, but acting differently than we say that we believe. You believe uh, that in following Jesus, you can overcome your your struggle with anger, for example, 
you pray and you read God's Word and you rest in the Holy Spirit and you apply that teaching to your life. But no sooner that you place your Bible down and something happens, a phone call, a child does something, a memory, and your anger flares up again. Ever been there? No, raise hands. It's okay. All right. Or maybe you are experiencing a barrage of circumstances that seem overwhelming to you and it's causing some panic to rise up and some anxiety to take place. You don't know how it's all going to work out. And so um, it just doesn't seem possible. But because you're a child of God, you, you immerse yourself in the Word of God. You ask for help and you go to God humbly and you allow the Holy Spirit to, to help you and to guide you in, in the Word of God and, and bring things to your attention and do some soul searching and, 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 and he's, this panic is removed, the anxiety is gone, and then you get up and begin your day only to be reminded again of the problems that you are facing and you spiral down again, right? It's just this, this awful cycle, right? So, I mean, we're just, we're just like these guys in that sense. We struggle like this. This is, this is what it looks like to be a child of God. I'm just being honest with you. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's being honest with his disciples. Does he love his disciples? These are all tender words in the upper room. He is preparing them for what is about to take place. And they're saying, oh, we believe. We know. We've got it figured out. Yes. Thank you for being plain with us. Now we know. And he's like, you don't have a clue. Because this is what's going to happen. You're going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone. But Jesus here comforts them with these truths because he loves them. And I'm just thankful that he is honest with them. He doesn't leave them saying, oh, it's good, I'm glad, believe. We like to hear that believe word. Now, write write that in your Bible, I believed on this day, and remember it because that's going to be the answer. No, he, he challenges them. And our Christian walk is one where we are growing step by step in our embrace of who Christ is. Now, there's, there's a side note that I think is really important here. Jesus says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now, friends, this, I didn't know this was in God's word as we've been going through John, and as I studied this, I thought to myself, hmm, this is really important. Now, hear this, because a number of years ago, with all the rise with psychology and psychiatry and pop psychology and all that kind of stuff, Um, certain reasons or attitudes were given as to why God created man. Now, if you can read this verse, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me, if you can read it and still believe the therapeutic nonsense that says God was empty, he had a hole in his heart that needed to be filled, and that is why he created you, telling you this verse tells you that is not true. Why? Because Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, I don't need you. I don't find my completeness with your presence. In fact, I know you're going to scatter. And don't worry, it's okay. Because I'm not alone. You left me alone, but I'm not alone. Why? Because I am with the Father. The Godhead does not need us. Grace is fully Godhead showered down to us. He is complete in the Godhead. 
Now, friends, this teaches us there's great intimacy going on in the relationships of the God. It teaches us that the object of his love or to be the object of his love is the most amazing grace. Especially in light of the fact that we fail him over and over and over again. I mean, you just get what Jesus is saying here. Listen, you who've been with me for the last three years, you whom I've chosen, you are going to scatter. In that time of need, you're going to abandon me. You're going to deny me. One of you is going to betray me. But you know what? I'll be left alone. But I'm okay. Because my fellowship, ultimately, is with Godhead. I have said these things to you, he says, verse 33, that in me you may have peace. Back now to what Jesus is doing, condescending again to his disciples, wanting to prepare them for what lies ahead. I have said these things. I think he's talking about the whole conversation in the upper room. I've said these things that in me you may have peace. Jesus knows our weakness and promises us his sinful children that in him we have peace. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about the, the peace that believers have when we are abiding in him. It's an eternal peace. It is a peace that is rooted in our position in Christ. And so, so here's, here's how we're getting to this. You see, this, this is all stuff that Jesus is saying. The disciples are saying we believe, and he's challenging their belief, and he's saying you're going to scatter, and he ultimately ends by saying, even so. Even though you abandon me, even though you deny me, even though you leave me, guess what? You are in me. And because you are in me, I give you what? Peace. So how can a follower of Christ feed joy? They honestly recognize their struggle in this world, that they'll fail him, They honestly recognize their settled position in Christ. If you are a child of God, if you have been brought into his family, your position doesn't change. And Jesus is saying it as a summary principle for the whole of the upper room discourse. And so he goes on, he says this, in the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation, sorrow, change, persecution, hatred, excommunications, murders. But take heart. Be encouraged. Apply all the principles and all the promises that I have given you in this upper room discourse to the fact that I am going away and you're going to be going through this time of tribulation. Take heart because ultimately, I have overcome the world. He's speaking about what is yet to take place. He's saying, I am going to be victorious. And when you see me hanging on that cross, confused and shattered and sorrowful, there's going to come a point where you recognize that that is the the sacrifice once for all that paid for the sin of mankind, that I am the Lamb of God sacrifice for the sin of the world. And I bring 
victory. And his victory is our joy that is constant. So our joy is triumphant because it comes through believing the promise of our eternal position. It doesn't change. Anyone here ever fail God? But your position in Him doesn't change. And friends, that brings joy. And sometimes we don't believe that. And so He's saying to His disciples, listen, believe it. I will be victorious. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 57, but thanks be to God, Paul says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just his victory. His victory is our victory. His joy is our joy. 1 John 4, 4. 1 John 4, 4. Little children. That's an expression talking about those who are believers. You are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are overcomers. Continue on in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Everyone who is a child of God, by virtue of their trusting in Jesus and their ongoing trust in what he calls them to, is experiencing victory. And that victory is triumphant. And that joy then is rooted in what Jesus Christ has done. And we have this position in him that is forevermore. So this joy, this this settled confidence in our sovereign God is fed by dwelling on and applying on the truth of the gospel. That's why we say to those of you who are visiting today, it is our greatest delight to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is from the gospel that the fountain flows for life. It is because of our position in Christ here that we have joy. It is because of our position in Christ that that joy can be full. It is because of who Christ is and what he has done that that joy is secure. And we're thankful for his ongoing presence in the Holy Spirit, for the answered prayer that we have coming from the Father, and for the peace that we can rest in because he has overcome the world and he has applied that to us. Now friends, let's wrap this up with some concluding thoughts. The first thing I want us to note is this. God wants us to find joy in Him. I mean, you've been hearing me press that home. You, as a child of God, can and should be living a life of joy in the Godhead. Now, let's just make sure we're distinguishing joy from happiness. Happiness fluctuates, right? Good day, bad day, good day, bad day, good day, bad day. Joy is that constant because we're resting in a sovereign God who is giving perspective on all those things, good, bad, whatever. It's joy. It's a constant that we hold on to, and that is the basis of our living for him. 
He wants us to find that joy in him. And I want to encourage you to pursue that joy. But the second thing is this. God wants us to help one another find joy. This is the body life part of it. This is how we are the body of Christ together. Because you may not be going through sorrowful times. You may not be going through some trial right now. But God has then granted you the ability to come alongside those who are and to minister the Word. That doesn't necessarily mean you sit down, you open your Bible, and you're teaching them X, Y, and Z, but you're fleshing out the truths of God's Word, sometimes sharing a verse of Scripture, sometimes giving counsel about what needs to happen next. It also means that you're, you're helping people to, to grasp an, an understanding and the application of, of the Gospel, as well as the, how the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. It's the body of Christ that is working together to help one another find joy in trusting Jesus. So it's not just for you. This is for the body. And you have a place. And there are going to be times when you're struggling and you need the body of Christ to come alongside and help you. But here's the third thing. And that is God wants us to show the world that in our trouble and sorrow that He is our source of joy. Some of you are going to be going and you're going to be laying in a hospital bed. You might be having surgery, you might be having a baby, you might be who knows what. Some of you are going to be you know, going to the bank and making a payment and maybe it's all the money you have. Some of you are going to be going to the grocery store and you're going to be struggling about what to buy here and there. There's all sorts of things that we're struggling with, but as we live our lives with all those kinds of struggles, it's an opportunity for us to demonstrate to those around us that we're not cynical about our walk with God, that we are rooted in His purposes. And as hard as it may be, that He has a purpose in our sorrow, in our tribulation, and we are seeking to find joy in the midst of it all and that we can and that he does grant it it is a means by which we testify to the goodness and the greatness of God and to the majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has changed us and is conforming us to the image of his son friends Jesus wants us to be prepared for what lies ahead. The kind of ministry that we're going to be involved in. As Gateway Bible Church, I don't know what is in store for us. I don't know how he's going to work through us. But he works through us individually. He works through us as a church. But he also works through us in a context of a community. And those might be rocky times. They might be smooth times. But we want to demonstrate to other people that we exist to glorify God. And in that glorifying God, it means that we are finding joy in Him no matter the circumstances because we understand His purposes and His will in all of it. Lord, we ask today as we contemplate on Your victory, on the joy that only comes through You, Lord, help us to see our failure Lord, to rest on the truths, Lord, that will feed our joy. But for some of us, we have been struggling in this area. For some of us, Lord, we, we, we do not 
see your hand at work. And Lord, it's hard for us just to step back and to find joy. But Lord, help us to be fashioned, to be shaped by your truth, by who you are, by what you're doing. And Lord, that, we, that the word of God, Lord, would be the basis of our understanding. And Lord, the ministry of your Holy Spirit just confirming that you are present with us. And Lord, there's so many things that you do in us. Lord, may we be people who are settled and secure and filled and victorious with the joy that you give us because of what you have done for us on the cross and because of what that means and how that fleshes out in our lives. Would you receive all the glory and all the praise? And Lord, I also just would appeal to you today specifically for those people who may be suffering and struggling with trial right now. Lord, I ask that your, your Holy Spirit would, would grab a hold of their heart, Lord, would minister your truth and, and knead it into their hearts and minds, Lord, so that they can truly just embrace, Lord, what it is that you're doing in their lives right now. Lord, we desperately need you. And we are amazed that you come down and you interact with us and you love us and you care for us. Lord, you grant us these things. We don't deserve it. But Lord, help us to live our lives worthy of it. And Lord, when we fail, help us to be confident that we are secure in you because of what you have promised. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.